Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Welcome to this edition of the Bully Pulpit from the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future. I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the center and the Warsaw Chair in Practical Politics. We're honored today to have as our guest Representative Jamie Raskin. He represents Maryland's 8th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives. He's a member of the January 6th Committee. Prior to his time in Congress, he was a three-term state senator in Maryland, a professor of constitutional law at American University's Washington College of Law for more than 25 years. He recently published his fifth book, a powerful and best-selling story that is profoundly personal and profoundly insightful about conditions in our country today. The title is Unthinkable, Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy. Let me introduce Representative Jamie Raskin and tell him how happy we are to have you here with us today. Well, thank you, Bob. I'm just delighted to be with you guys. Well, thanks. I'm going to start with with a question about the book, a personal question, because the book is profoundly personal. You write movingly and lovingly about the loss of your late son, Tommy Raskin. You lost him not long before January 6th. How did you maintain the resilience and leadership to then play the part you did in defending an American democracy when it seemed to be under real attack? Well, we lost Tommy on the last day of 2020, and um, it was a profound catastrophe for our family, a devastating thing. And um, our daughters came back home to be with Sarah and me. A bunch of other family came to be with us. And I, you know, I wasn't really sleeping. I wasn't really eating. And uh, I knew I had to go in on January the 6th because the speaker had tasked me months before with the job of getting ready for the GOP's onslaught against the counting of electoral college votes from certain swing states. We're getting ready just in the parliamentary sense, not in the military sense, which we should have been getting ready in. But um, so, uh, so I knew I had to go. And when, my daughters, you know, told me not to go and others were saying, don't go. I said, look, I, there was really no choice. It's a constitutional command that on the first Wednesday of the first week in January, Congress meets in joint session to collect electoral college votes. And as you know, we have an extremely slim margin. We were operating under COVID-19 conditions and people were just, you know, just dropping like flies because of the disease. We didn't know who could be there and who not. And I happen to live closer to the U.S. Capitol than any other member of the House other than our colleague, the non-voting delegate, Eleanor Holmes Norton from D.C. So I just said I had to go, but anybody who wanted to come with me could come. And so uh, our younger daughter, Tabitha, came and my son-in-law, Hank, who had eloped during the summer in one of those COVID-19 Elvis Presley weddings, uh, he decided to come. And so the two of them were with me on that day. But I, I guess I just, all I could think about, of course, was Tommy and doing whatever is I thought would 
make him proud? Reading the book, he was an extraordinarily talented person. And I think he was at Harvard. Is that, isn't that right? He was at the law school in his second year. Yeah. He, he was a poet. He was a playwright. He loved to write essays. He would just disappear and go write essays on different philosophical problems. He really was kind of a born philosopher, but he also had a, a very natural touch about politics. But ultimately, he was his vision was much greater than just, you know, the push and pull of regular partisan politics. And um, uh, anyway, we're in the process of collecting a bunch of his writings, poems and plays and um, speeches and stuff that that he did and um, essays. And so I'm hoping that we'll get to publish that this year. But yeah, he was a remarkable young man in many ways. And um, he just had a perfect heart. Uh, He had great love for people, for his friends, for his family, but he was overwhelmed by his depression and succumbed to it. And he wrote us a farewell note, which said, um, please forgive me my illness one today, look after each other, the animals and the global poor for me. All my love, Tommy. That is is very moving. In a sense, I suspect that he was with you on January 6th in spirit. I I felt him in my chest. I felt him in my heart. And, uh, you know, I record in the book uh, that when we were um, escorted out of the House chamber finally and, you know, shoved down into the tunnels and people were running and yelling and calling and saying their goodbyes to their spouses and kids and parents and stuff that the one feeling I did not experience, the one emotion I did not experience was fear. I was never afraid because I felt like the very worst thing that could ever happen had already happened. And, you know, what were these fascists going to do to me that could be worse than what I'd already experienced? Okay. Can I shift to the January 6th committee and ask you some questions about that? I know you can't publicly discuss a lot of what's happening with the committee. But on the public record, we know a lot about the attempt to nullify the presidential election. I mean, just last week, we learned that the White House had had massive document destruction under Trump and that the National Archives had to retrieve 15 boxes of documents that were illegally taken to mar lago How hard is it? How hard is this making it for you guys, for you folks? to investigate what really happened and get to the bottom of the truth? Well, the overwhelming majority of witnesses have voluntarily and many enthusiastically participated in our investigation. Uh, It's just that tight entourage right around Donald Trump, Uh, him and Steve Bannon and um, Roger Stone and Mark Meadows. It's the people right around him that we have found to be really uh, obstructionist in this process. But um, so much of what we need to know has come out. So much of what we need to know people are telling us. It would obviously be better if they followed the law and turned over the information they're legally required to. I mean, I, I hope people haven't grown so jaded by the Trump experience that they don't recognize how shocking it is that you have a former president of the United States who refuses to cooperate with a congressional inquiry and is trying to get other people not to cooperate in it. A former 
uh, White House Chief of Staff. I mean, how scandalous and appalling is that? But, um, you know, the, the, the courts have sided with us in knocking down all of their phony executive privilege claims. There's no executive privilege uh, that attends to insurrection or coups against the country. Um, and the president of the United States and the Congress are unified in saying that the executive privilege doesn't operate here. There's no executive privilege for coup plotters and insurrectionists. Um, and so we're winning on that. Uh, we're really in a race against the clock. Uh, they, you know, they're just going to try to run out the clock. Um, and th- that's the real struggle for us. Do we have enough time to use criminal contempt, civil contempt, inherent powers of contempt to make them uh, cooperate? Uh, and, you know, somebody like Steve Bannon, who's just acting like a Batman villain, would love nothing more than to be in a big fight with us about it, you know, as if he's standing for some principle other than his uh, alt-right uh, racial uh, white nationalist agenda, which is, you know, really what he's fighting for around the world. And you've got to see what's happened to the Republican Party is a complete degeneration. I mean, it's gone from being Lincoln's party to Donald Trump's party, and it operates like an authoritarian religious or political cult in league with white nationalist governments and movements around the world. Let me follow up on that about Republicans. I mean, you obviously disagree on a whole range of issues with the Republican members of the January 6th committee. Why haven't more Republican House members followed Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger's example instead of either being evasive about January 6th, evasive about the election, or even supporting claims that the election was stolen and January 6th was a legitimate protest? Well, it's a good question. We, we did have 10 Republicans join us um, on uh, January 13th in voting for impeachment, and there were seven Republicans in the Senate uh, who voted to convict, creating the 57 to 43 margin. Uh, which was the most sweeping bipartisan result in a presidential impeachment trial in the Senate in U.S. history, uh, although we fell short of the two-thirds threshold that we were seeking to get by by 10 votes. Um, But, you know, I think that the reasons are as varied as the motivations for the actions of politicians. I mean, for some, it's as simple as the idea that Donald Trump could get them defeated. Trump is, if nothing else, uh, a profound uh, retributionist. And so anybody who crosses him from Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, to um, Liz Cheney gets an opponent and gets Donald Trump campaigning for the opponent and trying to turn out um, you know, the, the Trump cult following to vote against them. For others, Uh, It may be they're looking to retire and they don't want to run afoul of the Republican Party establishment. I have noticed that some of the people who've stood up in the Republican Party either have a prominent name or family or independent wealth, um, like Liz Cheney, like Mitt Romney, you know, people who have some somewhere to stand and don't feel like they're completely subdued and cowed by Donald Trump. So I, I can't answer that question about why more haven't joined them. But we, you know, we're welcoming them with open arms. And de- the Democratic Party today is the party of democracy, but we're welcoming everybody to join us in a coalition to defend the constitutional order, 
against a political party that's positioned itself outside of the constitutional order and is attacking our constitutional system, our processes, our elections, and the outcome of elections. I mean, that, that you could view that as the fundamental precept of, of political party and constitutional democracy, that you celebrate when you win, you commiserate when you lose, but you accept the result. I mean, we just lost an election for governor in Virginia, which didn't make any of us happy. We didn't storm the Virginia state capitol and try to kill police officers and hit them over the head with uh, American flags. And much less than we go around lying about it, we said, okay, you know, they outflanked us with their rhetoric about critical race theory or whatever. How are we going to get ready for that next time? How close did we come to a breakdown of the system, number one, on January 6th? And what could have been done if Vice President Cheney had acted in the way Donald Trump wanted him to and thrown out the Biden electors from various states? What would have happened? Well, let me let me give you a sketch, Bob, of what I thought was taking place with Vice President Pence and Trump. And but the, to set the stage, there were three rings of sedition taking place on January sixth. One was a mass demonstration that turned into a violent mob riot. Uh, that was clearly Donald Trump's intention, as he called for a wild protest in Washington. Um, And there were tens of thousands of people there, many of whom arrived with innocent motivations, other of whom arrived with more violent motivations. But in any event, these people quickly became part of a crowd that was turned into a mob. They injured or wounded 150 different officers who ended up with broken jaws, necks, vertebrae, legs, arms. One lost three fingers. Uh, People had their eyes gouged, uh, traumatic brain injuries people still suffering post-traumatic stress syndrome and so on. The middle level of the seditious activity was the realm or the ring of the insurrection. And this was domestic violent extremist groups who were carefully recruited um, and trained uh, and preparing for battle on that day. This was uh, the Oath Keepers who have been uh, charged with um, seditious conspiracy already. Uh, the three percenters, the proud boys who were told by Donald Trump at the first presidential debate to stand back and stand by. It was the QAnon networks, the militia groups, the Unification Church, different Christian white nationalist groups, a number of cults. All of these people came, many of whom had been training for battle in paramilitary fashion, and they smashed our windows, they broke down our doors, they launched the violence against the officers that unleashed the most primitive and aggressive impulses in the crowd. That was not even the scariest ring. The scariest ring was the innermost ring of the coup, which is a strange word in American political parlance, because we don't have a lot of experience with coups, at least in our own country. And we think of a coup as something taking place against a president. This was a coup organized by the president against the vice president and against the Congress. And after having tried five or six other attempts, to overthrow Joe Biden's majority in the Electoral College, including browbeating and intimidating state election officials like Brad Raffensperger, who he told, just find me 11,780 votes, or going to the GOP leadership of state legislatures and trying to convince them to nullify the popular vote and just install Electoral College slates, or a plan that Michael Flynn and Giuliani had proposed of seizing the election machinery 
the the computers and then getting the military to rerun the election. After none of that stuff worked, then the final plan was let's get Mike Pence to declare powers in the vice president that had never been deployed or conceived of before in American history by any vice president to unilaterally nullify and repudiate electoral college slates coming in from the state. So all they wanted to do was to send Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania's electors back home to be reconsidered by the legislatures. But the practical effect of that under the 12th Amendment would have been immediately, which is the word in the 12th Amendment, immediately to trigger a contingent election in the House of Representatives. And if you ask, well, why did they want, why did Trump want Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats to be running in in his election? Because under the 12th Amendment, we don't vote one member one vote, we vote one state one vote. They had 27 state delegations. We have 22 state delegations. And Pennsylvania was tied, split right down the middle. So even if they had suffered the defection of the at-large rep from Wyoming, Liz Cheney, as undoubtedly they would have, it still would have left them with 26 votes. They would have declared him the president, like at the Republican National Convention. He would have probably called in the National Guard at that point after, you know, sitting on his hands all day, uh, invoked the Insurrection Act and declared martial law and put down the insurrectionary chaos that he had unleashed against us um, earlier in the day. What were you going to do, given the charge the Speaker had given you, if Vice President Cheney had gone along with President Trump's request? And how can we prevent this from happening in the future? Well, there are a number of reforms that we can institute with respect to the Electoral Count Act to prevent that from happening. Uh, I mean, we can, for one thing, declare what is obvious and what's always been understood, which is that the role of the Vice President is a ministerial and an administrative one to oversee the process, like the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in an impeachment trial. It's not to make substantive decisions. And there's never been any confusion about that. I don't want to put too much weight on that, Bob, because I don't want to play into the Republican idea that all we need to do is to clarify that you can't do what Trump wanted Mike Pence to do, because one, that plays into Trump's hands because he's saying it was ambiguous. It was never ambiguous. Everybody understood it. He was told that um, by all, Pence was told that by all of his lawyers both inside and outside the government, but also because it's fighting the last battle. I mean, the battle in 2022 and 2024 is about trying to defend the right to vote in the states against the GOP's determination to replace bipartisan election administration with Republican election administration and to replace appeals that would go to some kind of nonpartisan or bipartisan body to go to a Republican legislature. I mean, that's what they're trying to do wherever they can do it. So we've got to be careful that we're not just looking backwards. I'm not so afraid of Kamala Harris succumbing to a plot to get her to steal an election. So we should clarify that while we can do it. But we've got to look at where the next battles are coming. But it seems very, like very, very difficult to get the kind of voting rights reforms that you would favor through the U.S. Senate. Well, this is true. I mean, and this, you know, underscores the nature of the struggle today. And I, I tell people, don't give up hope in any way because the vast majority of America is on our side. I mean, Hillary beat him by 3 million votes. Then Joe Biden beat him by 7.5 million votes. The young people are coming 
to the Democrats. The New Americans are coming to the Democrats. They're a minority party and a shrinking minority party. So it's a contest between the will of the majority and where the demographics of the country are versus a bag of tricks. And in those tricks are the most anti-democratic instruments and practices in the country, the gerrymandering of our state legislative and congressional districts, the use of the filibuster, which is also not in the Constitution or in federal law. It's just a rule of the Senate that's already riddled with exceptions. Uh, and certainly we should carve out an exception for voting rights. Um, the suppression of the vote in the states by their resolve to eliminate weekend voting, eliminate early voting, eliminate mail-in balloting, uh, take over the election administrative process, uh, and so on. This is what we're up against. And, you know, I'm with John Dewey, and the, the traditional Democratic position has been that, that the best solution to the ills of democracy is more democracy, because all of those things are anti-democratic. It's all about preventing the will of the majority. That's what the filibuster is about. That's what voter suppression is about. That's what the gerrymandering of our districts is about. And this is these are the things we've been trying to take care of. So there's no doubt we're in the fight of our lives here um, because the GOP, which has literally no platform for the country, 2020 was the first time in American history one of the major parties did not adopt a platform. They have literally no platform, no program, but they do believe in voter suppression. They spend all of their time on these tricks to try to prevent the majority from governing. And so that's the struggle that we're in. Okay, you brought up gerrymandering. So I'm going to ask you a question I hadn't anticipated, but I, I think it's it's interesting. The state of New York has just signed, its the governor has just signed the congressional district maps. They tremendously advantage Democrats. Do you think Democrats have to gerrymander to try to counter the effects of Republicans gerrymandering? Or is it a case of each party just taking advantage whenever it can. Well, absolutely we must, because understand, we've been trying to overthrow gerrymandering. If you look at our For the People Act, if you look um, at um, the the Senate version, which Senator Manchin was, um, was pushing, we have been pushing for years now to replace partisan redistricting with independent, nonpartisan redistricting, no elected officials allowed. And that's just the beginning, because we could go further to move to multi-member districts and to have a much fairer allocation of seats. But in any event, we want to get rid of gerrymandering. And the Republicans now openly get up on the floor of the House and the Senate and they defend it. And they say, we don't want an outside panel of unelected people drawing the districts. We want the people's own representatives. In other words, they want them drawing the districts. So if that's the system that they've chosen, and we know that there are more than double the districts that they control because it's a self-perpetuating process where the state legislatures, even in Democratic states, if they're held by Republicans, they continue to slice and dice the districts to keep themselves in power. And so that's Wisconsin and that's Pennsylvania and that's Michigan and so on. Well, they've got more than double the districts they're able to redistrict. And so they're trying to gerrymander us into oblivion. We've got to fight back democracy is on the line here. Um, we see what Donald Trump's party is all about. So I don't apologize for that for one second. We've tried to reform the system. They defended the GOP now stands for the gerrymander only party. But if that's the, the system that they're defining for us, then we've got to do everything we can uh, to get as many Democrats elected to defend democracy and the will of the majority. I'm going to shift a little bit and ask you to talk about your role as impeachment manager during the Senate trial of 
uh, former President Trump. Did you ever think a conviction was possible? Did you always know you were never going to get the 10 extra votes you needed? On the contrary, I thought right up until the roll was called that we had a chance of uh, winning 100 to 0. I really thought that the evidence was so overwhelming um, and so irrefutable and certainly unrefuted at trial um, that the Republican senators might say to themselves, this is our opportunity to break from this autocratic maniac. Um, And I think that that was probably what was going on inside Mitch McConnell's heart. I mean, I saw him crying at a number of different points uh, during the trial. I know that he was moved by what he saw. And if you listen to his speech after the trial, he basically sounded like an impeachment manager. I mean, he said that Donald Trump is singularly ethically and actually responsible for what this nightmare that's just befallen us. I'm paraphrasing here. But then he went on to hang his hat on an issue we had resolved on the first day of trial by saying that there wasn't jurisdiction for the Senate to try him, which was ridiculous. And we had demolished that argument on the very first day of trial. And the Senate had voted 54 to 46 that there was jurisdiction. So it's like a criminal trial where somebody comes in and says the gun was illegally seized. The court hears the argument. The court rejects the argument. Now you forget about that and you move to the facts of the trial. But he never forgot about it. And so we went all the way through the trial. We overwhelmingly decisively proved that Trump had deliberately incited a violent insurrection against the government. And nobody contradicted it. He said we basically had made our case. And then he said, but there wasn't jurisdiction. So that's a remarkable exercise of jury nullification. When you think about it, it's the jury at that point saying, well, you've shown you've shown it on the facts, but we're going to step outside of our role and we're going to nullify. I mean, we still had a commanding majority of 57 to 43. But anyway, I, I was holding out hopes until the end. Um, and, and I thought if McConnell came with us, then we would have at least 67 votes uh, because that would have been a majority of the Republican caucus. And as long as he had a majority with him, he, he would have known that he could um, withstand any effort by Trump to beat him in the future. So I thought that that was probably the most likely thing, that we would win 67 to 33. I thought 100 to 0 was possible. Um, a lot of people were saying it was just going to be a, a 50-50 tie. It would be maybe Romney would do what he'd done before. But we did convince seven Republican senators from the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic, the South, the Midwest, the West, Alaska. All these senators um, came with us. And of course, uh, Donald Trump is trying to exact his retribution against those who are still in politics. So you talked earlier about the Democratic Party today, in your view, being the party of democracy and the GOP being something else. Don't we really need two governing parties in this country? After all, the other party's going to win sometimes. How do we get back to the point where we have two governing parties, where you might have a president you disagreed with, but you could respect? Well, of course we do. I mean, we need at least two governing parties. The you know, our Constitution, as Richard Hofstadter wrote, was a Constitution written against parties, right? It was against <laughs> partisan faction, if you read Mad- you know, Madison Federalist 10. But the framers were also realists. You know, they, they all spoke against faction, and they all belonged 
to these incipient political parties. Um, so they understood what human nature is like. You put people in a room, whether it's, uh, you know, at a constitutional convention or the U.S. House of Representatives or a faculty room or whatever it is, and people are going to divide up into groups. They understood that as being something fundamental to human nature. But they didn't make parties official. A lot of constitutions around the world talk about political parties. Ours doesn't. It doesn't talk about parties, much less a two-party system, much less Democrats or Republicans. And we've had parties replace parties in the past. In fact, the Republican Party was a replacement for the Whigs. Um, and so that they were a new party when they got started. So I think that we, we definitely need at least one more functioning party in America. Um, I don't know if the Republican Party is salvageable. I told the Republican senators that I got to speak to they needed to do this for America and for our Constitution, but they also needed to do it for the GOP because Donald Trump would bring them to ruin and destruction. They are a rule or ruin party, and that comes right out of his own head. Either he's going to control everything or he's going to tear it down. He's going to destroy it. It's a very dangerous thing for a political party to wrap itself around somebody with that worldview. Do you hold out much hope that we will get to the bottom of everything that occurred and that people will be held accountable in a real and serious way? Well, I think we're going to get to the bottom of the the basic themes of both the coup and the insurrection, um, and we will have definitely the basic dynamics down that we will be able to report back to the American people because of the obstruction and the foot dragging of uh, Donald Trump and his immediate entourage, Steve Bannon, Roger Stone, um, Mark Meadows, we're, we're, we probably won't get all of the content of the immediate conversations that ordered the various attacks on democracy. But we're going to get most of it. And the vast majority of people are participating uh, enthusiastically with us and want the truth to come out. I mean, that's one of the great things about democracy. People understand it's the right of the people to know what's taking place with our own government. And our assignment under House Resolution 503 is to report on the events of January 6th, the causes behind them, and then what needs to be done to fortify our democratic institutions going forward. So I think that we will get uh, answers. As for accountability, um, you know, and I know people are desperate to see Donald Trump, who's a one-man crime wave, held accountable for some of his offenses against the republic and for some of his crimes. You know, our job is not that. That's the job of the Department of Justice and the U.S. attorneys and the state prosecutors. They're going to deal with the question of individual accountability. I do guess as one citizen that he will get his comeuppance uh, because of all of the bank fraud and the real estate uh, fraud and the electoral fraud, all of it. I think it's going to catch up with him. But our charge is not individual accountability so much as social accountability. That is defining for the American people and for Congress what happened and then how we can make sure that our constitutional democratic system survives going forward. I want to shift to a, another question. You've alluded to the fact that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. Uh, Joe Biden won it by a big margin. I mean, since 2000, we've had the loser of the popular vote win the presidency several times. In 2007, when you were a state senator, you introduced the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact Act, 
which reforms the Electoral College without abolishing it and guarantees that the candidate who receives the most popular vote becomes president. Can you describe how this would work and assess whether there's any prospect that would actually come into effect? So the national popular vote is an interstate compact. And of course, under the Constitution, the states have the power to form agreements. So this is an agreement um, of states who agree to exercise their power under Article 2 of the Constitution to appoint electors like this. We will appoint electors not for the winner in our state. We will appoint electors for the winner of the national vote once uh, the 50 states in the District of Columbia have added up their votes and then all of them have been tabulated. We will cast our electors for the winner of the national vote. But the, the, our, um, the, our promise to do that only comes into effect when we have enough states participating that we have 270 electoral college votes in the coalition, at least that number. So it's got to be effective every time. And once we do that, once we have enough electors in the coalition, then we effectively will get to a national popular vote. And that will be a bridge, I think, to just abolishing the electoral college and moving constitutionally to a national popular vote. It's the way, actually, that most uh, constitutional amendments have come into being. It started with state action. I mean, if you look at women's suffrage, for example, before we got two-thirds of the House and the Senate and three-quarters of the states to pass women's suffrage in the 19th Amendment, we had a majority of the states who had enfranchised women of their own accord. And before we shifted the mode of election of U.S. senators in the 17th Amendment in 1913 from the legislatures to the people, we had a whole bunch of states which said, we're just going to do that on our own. We, the legislature, will be bound by the vote of the people. So there's great precedent for what we're talking about doing. That's how it would work. We're more than halfway there. We have more than, um, I, I think we have something like 167, 168 electoral college votes. We need 270. Um, somebody who used to be on our side about the electoral college was Donald Trump, who said it made us the laughing stock of the world and whoever gets the most votes from wins uh, and so on. But then he abandoned that position after the 2016 election when he discovered uh, heretofore uh, unknown virtues to the system. And so it's become a partisan thing unfortunately. But if you poll it, upwards of 80% of the American people say they support a national popular vote for president. And the Electoral College is now not just undemocratic, and it's not just um, something that depresses the vote because the whole election comes down to seven or eight swing states, and most people live in safe red states or safe blue states. But it's a positive danger to us now. The Electoral College is a danger, as we saw on January 6th. There are so many nooks and crannies in this antiquated, obsolescent system that if you've got a strategic bad actor like Donald Trump involved, he can exploit each one of these things to create real trouble. And January 6th used to be a day of bipartisan drinking and celebration on Capitol Hill, and now it's a, a day for vicious partisan combat and um, violence, as we've seen. Oh, yeah, you people can watch the film of Richard Nixon presiding over JFK's victory in what had been a close election in 1960. You can watch Al Gore in 2000, who was absolutely convinced that he had won, but who, after the Supreme Court decision, said, I have to act in the interest of democracy, presiding over his own defeat. I mean, that's a long tradition. There was respect for the idea 
of government by the people. And it's been capsized by our friends in the GOP because they accept the will of one guy. I mean, that sets us up for dictatorship. But don't you give Vice President Pence some, some real credit for standing up under what was unbelievable pressure? When you read these books, yeah. it's almost incredible what he went through. Trump summoned him to the White House and said, you're going to go down in history as a patriot or a pussy, continue to mobilize a tremendous campaign against him. So on that day, he was a great constitutional patriot. He uh, really lived up to his oath of office. And um, on that day, he was a hero. I mean, they hustled him out. They got him down to some kind of safe place in the somewhere in the basement of the Capitol. And then the Secret Service tried to get him to leave the Capitol campus, and he refused to do it. I think because he knew he might not get back. And he said uh, in these rather chilling words, I'm not getting in that car. He knew that there was uh, a lot of mischief afoot that night, and they were looking for any possible opportunity just to declare Donald Trump the winner, and they needed to get Mike Pence out of the way. I want to turn to audience questions in a moment, but I I want to end my questions on another personal one. Your father, Marcus Raskin, whom... I was privileged to know a little, uh, was an iconic political activist, the co-founder of the Institute for Policy Studies, one of the earliest progressive think tanks in the country. How did his career and legacy shape your politics and your values? Well, that's a question I'm not going to be able to answer uh, quickly if we're going to get to other questions, Bob. I I write a lot about my dad in the book. Uh, My son, uh, Tommy, was extremely close to my dad, and I think my son had a lot of my dad in him, which made the tragedy of losing him all the more painful for me. But, you know, my, my dad uh, identified very much with the tradition of American pragmatism, not, not in the, the cynical Washington sense of, you know, you just do whatever's going to sell on that day, but in the sense of uh, John Dewey and William James and the pragmatist who said the greatness of America was the ability to experiment for the common good and to conduct public experiments to try to advance the well-being of society. So I I have very much imbibed that philosophy, and I'm proud to be part of a party which is trying to make democracy work for the people. I mean, we passed the infrastructure bill, a trillion dollars plus to invest in the ports and the airports and the bridges and the metro systems and uh, the roads and the highways and so on. And we're trying to do Build Back Better um, with universal pre-K for three-year-olds and four-year-olds and lower prescription drug prices. I mean, that's the tradition um, that resonates most with me. Let's do what we can to make life better for people. Let's, let's make democracy work. But, you know, my dad also had a visionary element, which I think uh, my son Tommy also assimilated very early on. And um, Tommy used to talk about war in the way that my dad used to talk about war, which is one day human civilization will get beyond war the way we've gotten beyond slavery or the way we've gotten beyond witchcraft trials. Uh, It's something that we will leave behind as dysfunctional for us because we're going to evolve behind beyond that. And, you know, Tommy also was someone who um, stopped eating meat uh, in college, and he was a passionate vegan. He said that, you know, he wanted his dinner and his lunch to be nonviolent, and uh, he wasn't uh, he wasn't a guilt tripper. But he recruited dozens and dozens, and now hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people, to not meat eating because he said in the age of uh, 
beyond sausage and impossible burgers. There's simply no reason, even, you know, a hankering for meat, there's no reason for people to be complicit in the suffering of animals in order to get their protein. Okay. Our first audience question comes from Janine Chuning, who is a teacher of U.S. history and AP government and politics. What advice would you give educators on how best to approach civic education in the process of politics when it seems like everything has changed, everything has been turned upside down? Well, that's a great question. Um, Well, let's see. Let me be extremely self-promoting here and discuss two books I wrote. One is called We the Students, which is a collection of all the Supreme Court decisions that affect kids in public high schools and middle schools and elementary schools. So it's everything from drug testing, the censorship of newspapers and yearbooks, to prayer in the schools, the segregation and desegregation cases. And it was sponsored by the Supreme Court Historical Society. And I'm feeling um, proud and defined about my book because the Republicans are trying to ban that book in Texas right now. They've got a bill to get rid of We the Students. So I'm doing whatever I can to remind people that it's out there. Uh, but you might also check out my book that I that I wrote about this whole experience. Um, which is called Unthinkable because it does talk about the upheavals that we're going through, the struggles for voting rights that we've experienced, and then what are the struggles today? Um, The other thing is I've got a project with um, high school and college kids that we do in the summer called Democracy Summer, um, and we're in the process of building a new curriculum for that. I'd be happy to share it with you if you uh, email my office and... um, And if you want, I'll put you on my list, and I guarantee you'll never be lonely again. (laughs) Question two and question three are very similar from Cole Dubrow and Michael Rogers. How safe is American democracy? In your opinion, do you think our democracy has ever been in such a dangerous time as we experienced on January 6th? Isn't there significant fragility built into the system? Yes, um, there's a lot of fragility, a lot of precariousness. I mean, Abraham Lincoln knew it. He talked about it on the battlefield where he posed the question, not rhetorically, but practically about whether or not government of the people, by the people, for the people shall perish from the earth. Um, And I think when you look at what happened on January 6th and you look at some of the trends in the country today, a lot of the historians are comparing it to the period around the Civil War. I don't think the country would be sectionally divided in the same way. We've got blue and red areas in every state in the country, in every county in the country, really, or the vast majority of counties. But, I mean, what are we headed for? Something like Northern Ireland, like tribal uh, violence and that kind of thing? I, I certainly hope not. So how safe is the country? The, the country is as safe as we are willing to fight for it to defend our institutions and to make sure that democracy works for people. So my dad used to say, when everything looks hopeless, you're the hope. Uh, So we've got to be the hope. We've got to be the ones who get out there and teach democracy to the young people, spread democracy, connect with the democratic movements around the world to oppose all of Donald Trump's friends like Putin in Russia and Orban in Hungary and al-Sisi in Egypt and Duterte in the Philippines and Bolsonaro in Brazil, all of the autocrats and the dictators and the thugs have found each other. And we have to be as strong on the pro-democracy side in supporting democracy and human rights all over the world. Our next question is from 
Tafik Othman, and I hope I pronounced that name right. What is the role of truth, quote unquote, in journalism? And is there a disconnect between the reality of the situation and the way it's reported by different media outlets in terms of what happened on January 6th? Well, yes, definitely. I mean, it's an alternate reality, of course, if you tune into Fox News and, you know, the, the nether regions around it. Um, Donald Trump has uh, laid down the edict that uh, his mob, his rioters, uh, greeted the officers with hugs and kisses. Um, and he has repeatedly intoned the mantra that the election was on January 6th. That's when the people really spoke and the insurrection uh, was on November 3rd. Um, this is a former president of the United States who is saying this, and th- his entire political subculture follows that. So what's the role of the truth? Let me quote my dad again, because, uh, Bob, you got me in the mood of thinking about my father, but my dad used to say that democracy needs a ground to stand on, and that ground is the truth. Um, and Journalism is essential. The reporters are not the enemies of the people, uh, as the last president had it. The journalists are the people's best friend. And Thomas Jefferson knew that. I mean, Jefferson said, if you ask me to choose, choose between a government without a newspaper or a newspaper without a government, I would not hesitate a moment to choose the latter. Uh, so, uh, we need to defend journalism, defend reporters and defend the idea of truth, science, rationality, reason, data, all of those things that the framers, even with all of their flaws and their imperfections and blind spots, they at least did believe that the purpose of government was to deal with reality and then make incremental progress for everyone. But of course, the definition of everyone had to change because we began not as government of the people, but rather a slave republic of white male property owners. But Jefferson planted in the Declaration the ideals that we could use, that successive movements for social change could use to transform America, the ideas of consent of the governed and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and all of us being created equal. People have struggled to make those values and ideals real for everybody. We have a question from Dina Keel, who says, 15 boxes, as I noted earlier, were retrieved of White House records from Mar-a-Lago. Any estimate how many boxes were actually taken from the White House? And did all of them get returned? Did all that material get returned to the archives? I've got the exact same question she does. We don't, I don't know the answer to that. We don't know the answer to that. I can't say I was exactly surprised when I heard it because, you know, we know that Donald Trump, if nothing else, evinces spectacular disrespect for the law. He violates the law on pretty much a daily basis. And even laws that he's complained about before with respect to Hillary Clinton and so on, they have no problem absolutely trampling. One of my committees that's not the January 6th committee, the oversight committee, which I serve on, is going to be looking into uh, the stealing of those documents because that's government property. It doesn't belong to Donald Trump or his family or his business. It belongs to the people of the United States, just like the presidency belongs to the people, just like the election belongs to the people. It doesn't belong to a single individual. And I fault my party, Bob, for not having gone after Donald Trump for the original sin of his presidency, which was repeated and continuous violations of both the foreign and the domestic emoluments clauses. 
He turned the presidency of the United States into a money-making operation. He was collecting millions of dollars from foreign governments uh, in keeping all of his businesses going. And he also had his businesses raking in millions of dollars from the U.S. government, which is a violation of the domestic emoluments clause. And I think it was uh, a total mistake on our part not to put that front and center so people could understand what was really going on. He was the first president to convert the presidency into uh, a massive instrument of self-enrichment. The next question comes from a USC student I know and admire, Gabe Romero. It's not a hopeful question. He says, what do you say to young people today and college students like us who see the dire threat of creeping authoritarianism in the U.S., see the dire threat posed by climate change, see the dire threat posed by federal inaction on every pressing issue from gun control to drug pricing reform to police reform and even inaction on the authoritarian threat itself that represents a direct attack on the Constitution. Where can we find any hope for the future of our country? Well, but I, I'm finding hope in, in you for asking that question because you have such a clear-eyed understanding of what we're up against uh, in this period. And you've got a responsibility to go out and educate people. I hope you get involved with us in Democracy Summer. Um, and we need the young people to spread out. I spoke to some college students the other day. They, they expressed similar sentiments, and they said, it's a desperate situation. What should we do? I said, I'm going to give you the advice I give the little kids in soccer. Don't bunch. Not everybody needs to live in Brooklyn or DuPont Circle. Spread out. Go back to where you're from. Go to Georgia. Go to South Dakota. Take your 10 best friends uh, and move to Texas. We, we need to spread out because of the nature of American federalism. And I know, um, you know, there's a tendency for people wanting to be more with people who think like they do. And I can understand, uh, you know, not necessarily wanting to uh, hold up uh, the flag of progressive democracy all the time in Alabama. But there's some great people in Alabama and there are people who need your help. So think about where you can go to turn the situation around. Be, just be very strategic and shrewd in thinking about where you're going to go and what you're going to do, because we need you. We need you very badly. The next one comes from my colleague at USC, Professor Allison Rentown. She says, thank you for sharing your analysis of the current political situation, but could you please tell the students how, if at all, your experience in student government influenced you and prepared you for your current role? And can you tell us about your democracy camp and how our students might contribute to that initiative? Well, thank you, Allison, and thank you, I think, for facilitating uh, this invitation to come out and to address everybody at uh, USC. I'm delighted to be with you. Look, um, I think one of the great things about being at school is having the opportunity to uh, engage in campaigning and learning how to speak to people politically, how to organize people politically. The campuses have been uh, a source of uh, great political progress in our country. And Bob Trump can certainly tell you about the role that students played in different campaigns uh, that he ran uh, over the years. So get involved in the student government, get involved in the student organizations, but think about where you are geographically and then what it is you can be doing. Our Democracy Summer uh, program is all about mobilizing the new generation to become organizers and to become leaders and to practice those political skills. And a lot of people go through it and they end up, you know, maybe doing something else. Maybe they go into business or they go into music or they become a teacher or what have you but they 
maintain a presence in political life as a volunteer and an organizer and activist. And a lot of them do end up making a career out of political action. So give it a try precisely because uh, you might not care about politics, I'll tell the young people, but politics cares about you and it affects everybody. And so you need to be involved in it. And uh, climate change, of course, is a civilizational emergency. I know the young people uh, feel it very seriously, like they do uh, the revival of racism and anti-Semitism and authoritarianism and all of um, the monsters of the 20th century, which they have brought back to us. So this is your chance to demonstrate uh, both your historical understanding and your civic and political courage uh, to act, to organize people and to be part of the solution. There are no shortage of things you can be doing right now to help. An anonymous attendee asked, how were the insurrectionists able to make it into the Capitol building? It seems that for such a violent act of aggression, that similar aggression would have been used for defense. It just seems like everyone let this happen. Well, we will get into the details of that. I mean, it's a, it's a very good question, but there was uh, tremendous violence used by medieval waves of marauders coming in to storm and a vastly outmanned, outwomaned, uh, overwhelmed police force. But we'll be able to tell more specifics about how particular breaches were made into the building and how particular windows were smashed, particular doors were knocked down, and then the violence that was used against the officers, which was really savage and brutal. I think all of you must have seen what happened to Officer Hodges, who got caught in the door and was screaming. He was basically being tortured in front of the whole world. And remarkably, when he was finally dislodged and they were able to get some of the chemicals and the mace and the tear gas out of his eyes and out of his face, he went back and rejoined the battle for several hours to give you a sense of the physical and the moral courage of the officers. And we have colleagues today who will not even vote to support an inquiry into what happened. And originally, the GOP caucus said they were for an independent commission like the 9-11 commission outside made up of five Republicans, five Democrats, equal subpoena power on both sides. And we consented to that. We said, great, let's write it up and let's do it. And then Donald Trump said, no, he didn't want any investigation at all. So they pulled the plug on that. And then they opposed the select committee we had to create in the House of Representatives to take its place and have uh, boycotted it, except for Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, to their great credit. Okay, last question. It echoes something we talked about earlier. What are the plans to counter it if in 2024, state legislators or secretaries of state refuse to accept the actual election results in their states, raising unfounded charges of fraud, for example, and they certify their own slates of electors? Well, we're going to do what we can within Reform of the Electoral Count Act to deal with that problem. And then we need, because they've blockaded with the filibuster our attempt to have voting and election reform, we're going to have to go state by state to prevent that from happening. And it's just going to vary from state to state. We need independent outside actors like the League of Women Voters, which is the, one of the great legacies of the 19th Amendment. We'll have, uh, you know, common cause. Other public interest reform groups. But then obviously the Democratic Party will be doing everything we can 
to stop a partisan takeover of the election machinery and the electoral apparatus, which we know is uh, on their agenda. Earlier on when, when we were talking, I was thinking of the fact that when state legislatures used to pick senators, that in 1858, in the famous Lincoln-Douglas race, Abraham Lincoln won the popular vote in Illinois, and the state legislature elected Stephen A. Douglas to the U.S. Senate. So we've had these problems throughout American history. I want to thank you for a remarkable and provocative conversation. I want to urge everyone in our audience to read Unthinkable. It's a very powerful book, as I said at the outset. I want to thank Allison, who did indeed play a pivotal role in making this event happen. And I want to thank our audience. We'll see you all for the next Bully Pulpit. And Representative Raskin, once again, we're very, very grateful. Thank you. Well, it was a great honor and a great pleasure. So hello to all my friends in California, and I I hope I'll be seeing you guys in the flesh sometime. Great. You're invited. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.